0: All right, flip to Ecclesiastes seven. Uh, I, I, I led you all astray somewhat. I, I thought we were gonna take 15 weeks, but I'm, I'm changing uh, the way I've approached the book since I preached it, what, six years ago, seven years ago? So I just decided to scrap all that and, and do it my own way this way. So so we're gonna kind of, uh, we'll be done a little bit quicker. I don't yet know how quicker, but. As you know, Easter is uh, approaching as well, in April, April 12th, so mark your calendars. So Ecclesiastes 7, and uh, we're going to talk about how to inhibit wisdom. So if you've ever wanted to figure out ways in which you can inhibit and restrict wisdom in your life and pursue folly, we're going to tell you how to do that. Uh, Kohaleth will tell us. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we ask and pray with faith and hope that you would grant us the wisdom of your word so that we may be equipped to discern that which is right and that which is wrong. There's much confusion today on what is right and what is wrong, and we need to go to your word to figure that out. So help us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name, I pray, amen. Amen. If you look at your Bible at the end of chapter 6, you'll read this in verse 12, For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? So um, Ecclesiastes works with this assumption that man is man and that God is God, and there's no real confusion about it. Uh, In our day, there is confusion about it, but in, in the mind of Ecclesiastes, in the mind of the Bible, there's really no confusion um, the person who loves God's law, the theonomist, adores God, but he never wishes to be God. The autonomist, the person who is a self-law, right, who, who pursues life on his own authority, adores himself, and he longs to be as God, or be a God, if you will. A deistic ascension program where he's trying to be, to be God. So the other issue surrounding these distinctions, though, between someone who loves God's law and who loves God's word, who's pursuing God, and someone who pursues their own authoritarianism, their own uh, view of life, so on and so forth, um, th- these issues all kind of conflate and, and come together when we think about the vanity of life. How do we, in Ecclesiastes' mind and, and, the, and the preacher's mind, is, is is the Hebrew name, how do we handle this perennial problem of vain repetition. Why is it that today, uh, maybe, I don't know if you're like me, but the time change, I just, I want to add that to the list of things we need to abolish. (laughs) And I don't know what it is. It just, it's a, it's a tactic. It's, it's terrible. So, but it's a vain repetitious thing. Like we do it every year. And no one really knows sure why, except for maybe we get a little bit more daylight out of our day. But, you know, does it really actually change anything other than your sleep problems the night before? I don't know. But this vain repetition in world, this vain repetition, I say, as verse 12 indicates here in chapter 6, in order to solve the dilemma, we need something that's adequate for daily living. We need something adequate to, to deal with this issue. Something which has some mileage to it and needs to last your entire life. And whatever it is, we need, we need whatever it is to be comfortable with the enigmas and the paradoxes of life. Uh, you know, the, the chapter 3, the time to be born, a time to die. There's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's all these different things. How do we sort it out and deal with it? And in this search for reprieve, we have to have some sort of meaningful experience. There has to be this value of life in God's vain, repetitious world that's worthy of pursuit. What is that thing that we're going to... What's the answer? What what does wisdom give us when we deal with these problems? And the issue of sin and suffering kind of comes to the forefront here in chapter 7. And he's going to inquire what wisdom is. And here's how we can basically summarize the chapter, and then we'll just walk through it. Um, Verses 1 through 6... Teach us the didactic nature of suffering. That is, it teaches us something. It tells us something. Suffering teaches us something about God, something about life. Um, Verses 7 through 10 warns us of its dangers. Uh, Verses 11 and 12 demonstrate that wisdom is absolutely indispensable. Children, you should always be pursuing wisdom in your life. What is wise? What is foolish? How do we know? That sort of stuff. Um, Verses 13 and 14 tells us about God's sovereignty and how life is under the hand of God. And then the second half of the chapter essentially explores the crookedness of life and man's helplessness in trying to straighten it out. God made it crooked. Why are you trying to straighten it? That sort of thing. And And it also ends with exploring the crookedness of man's rebellion and man's sin. So in short, this is a study on how to inhibit wisdom in your life. All right? If you really want to go the path of foolishness, here's how to do it. <laughs> OK? God's foolishness, in other words, is wiser than the wisdom of man. Um, I've said this before, but his reductio ad absurdums, his ability to reduce things down to the absurd, are much better than ours. He's quite clever at doing that. So if you want to thwart wisdom, here's what to do. Look at verse one. "A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Character and integrity, he says, are, are both better than the fleeting momentary smells of perfume. In the same vein of thought, he says, death is better than, than birth. And we would say to live as Christ, to die, to die is gain. So we're fine with that paradox. But wisdom knows how to both live well and how to die well. Foolishness can handle neither of those things. Fools don't know how to live well, and they don't know how to die well. Knowing how to do both means that your unconscious, meaning it's done without you realizing it, your unconscious birth is far less of a matter, because, matter than, than your conscious death. Um, you might say it this way. The, en- the end of life is better for the wise man because he knows where things are headed. Um, fools live in this constant state of disorientation and thus they can't make sense of it. So uh, the example we talked about earlier with legislation about regulating your speech towards politicians, <laughs> they're, they're so disoriented they're making stuff up. It's essentially, that's the sign of foolishness. So it's better, it's the, the, the day of one's death is better than the day one's, one's birth. How many of you actually remember the moment of your birth? <laughs> you, have no un, you have no conscious ability to, to know that but you certainly can know how to live well and how to die well. Verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure." That's through verse 4. So this is one of my favorite verses. I've actually used this for funeral messages several times because of what it teaches us. In in God's vanity-stricken world, mourning and feasting come from Him, and there's a time for both. There's a time for mourning, there's a time for feasting. However, the wise person recognizes that there is also a priority between the two. Not only is there a time for both, there's a priority between the two. Mourning, sorrow, and a sad face, he says, is better because when a wise man takes this to heart, he is capable of handling the vanity in a different way than had he only laughed himself through life. So the the fact that dying is better than being born only makes sense when we grasp the trajectory of God's plans for the world. When we understand where God is taking our lives, where we understand where he's taking history, that's why we can say what we can say. It's... The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. So the only possible way to deal with history then is to to realize that God deals with history. That's the only way to deal with it. If you don't know that God is actively involved in the affairs of history, you can't possibly deal with the complexities of history. So you don't have to necessarily even deal with it, you have to trust Him in it. The tomb of Christ is empty, which means that dying is not without meaning. Dying is not without meaning. If dying is not without meaning, then living functions on a different level than we may have previously assumed. So wise men know this. Wise men and women understand this, which is why they're able to handle the mourning, the sorrow, the sad face, far better than the fools who think that laughing and sneering are the only real virtuous pursuits. So another way I've just sort of, this is the JGV, my version, funerals are better than comedy shows. Because funerals can teach you something about reality that a comedian simply cannot. So no one, no one goes to a party, a birthday party, for example, to think deeply about how to die well. No one does that. Uh, and if you've done that, you're weird. But laughter is good. Laughter is good, we know from Scripture. It's absolutely good. But laughter helps no man plan his exit strategy. Laughter doesn't help you plan for leaving an inheritance for your children. Laughter doesn't plan well for that. Only the house of mourning can do that. Verse 5. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So there are several dangers to wisdom. If you want to inhibit wisdom, there are are obstacles to wisdom. And the first one is corruption. I'm going to list several, but the first one is corruption. Much like dying is better than birth, so listening to the rebuke of wisdom is better than hearing the flattery of fools. Okay, you should be more apt to want to be rebuked by wisdom than flattered by foolishness. That's what he's saying. Fools will flatter to impress you, and they will bend the truth the entire time. They will also laugh, but like sparks from the fire, they go away and they're never remembered. See, the trouble comes in when listening to fools leads to a corrupted heart. Oppression makes wise men man, he says, and bribery, which is laced with flattery and songs, corrupts the heart. So it's better to hear the rebuke of a wise man than listen um, to the song of fools. And there's a lot of songs that are foolish. (laughs) Verse 8. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience, is, patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. So, knowing that God is sovereign helps you avoid the pitfalls of being unable to tell the time. Unable to tell the time. This is why dying, he says, is better than birth. Discerning the end of something, like the end of a person's life, is better than the beginning, which remains to be seen. Um, no one saw Hitler's birth and thought, boy, this isn't gonna end well. No one can tell that. Only as time progresses can you tell that. Again, do you know enough to tell your own birth story? Well, there was my mom panicked at the hospital, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then suddenly I made an appearance and asked what was for lunch. You know, no one, no one does that. The end of a matter is better than the beginning. The finished product of the Ark didn't make sense to the rest of the world. The finished product didn't make sense to the rest of the world. For Noah, it was the faithful end of a project that required absolute trust the entire time. For the world, though, it was the beginning of their end, which did not consist of faith, but consisted of jeering and sneering and making um, trouble for Noah and his family. Their haughtiness meant that they could not discern the times. They were so blinded by their haughtiness, they didn't realize rain, What is this rain you speak of? It's going to flood the earth? That's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. That's haughtiness of spirit. Impatience, in other words, is our second obstacle to wisdom. Corruption, now we have impatience. Verse 9. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Eagerness cuts both ways. Eagerness cuts both ways. One can be eager to leap off the cliff of impatience, or one can be eager to slow it down and watch where he's standing. Eagerness can go both ways. If you are eager, for example, to be angry, that is, you are quick and full of resolute to blow a cranial gasket, you should know that this is where tomfoolery lives. You don't want that stuff in your lap. You don't want anger to be your first course of action. Bitterness and anger is, again, another obstacle to wisdom. That's the third obstacle. Impatience is the second. Corruption is the first. The third is bitterness and anger. He keeps going. Look at verse 10. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. <laughs> this, is, this is fitting for our day. The fourth obstacle to wisdom is a naive nostalgia which, like impatience, doesn't have a working clock. Can't tell the time. Fools think that the good old days were better than today. Oh, if we could go back to the 50s, right? Ah, <laughs> oh, if we could go back. As if they didn't have their share of problems. Fools think the good old days were better than today. Why? Well, because he doesn't have the faith to trust in God's providential guidance. If the days before were better... Then God's sovereignty over the progression of history is now in question. But wise people don't ask dumb questions like this. Because God is carrying his decrees on his shoulders. And frankly, he doesn't need your help. The best days of the church are far ahead of us. And that's kind of the misnomer. Well, We need to return to the early church. I, 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 don't, I don't want to go to the Colosseum and be eaten by a lion. Mm-hmm. I don't. But I want to labor now so that Christ can be glorified in the nations there's a difference. Look at verse 11 and 12. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good in an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. See, wisdom is incredibly advantageous. Absolutely. Much like an inheritance and much like money can be an advantage to your life. And you might think the former days to be better, but the wise man knows how to store up for the future in order to prevent adverse circumstances. So having the wisdom and knowledge to discern the times, you should know, is worth far more than the wealth that you're trying to steward and safeguard. If you want want to safeguard wealth, and you should, leaving an inheritance and so on, building wealth for the kingdom, um, you know, Funding missionaries, doing the hard things. If you want to do that, that all of that's meaningless if you don't have the wisdom and the knowledge to do it right. You're just, you're just going to end up messing around. Verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after Him. You should have this verse earmarked in your Bible. The surest, most efficient way to halt the inhibition of wisdom in your life, to turn away from foolishness, is to consider God and His work. Look what he says. He's telling you all the things. Don't don't do those things. What should you do? You should consider God and His work. When you're tempted to be impatient... When you're tempted towards corruption or bitterness or anger in your life and naive nostalgia, he says, "Consider the work of God. Consider His work. If, if God bends it, don't straighten it. If God straightens it, don't bend it. Abolish daylight savings. See, prosperity and adversity—we we learn from the life of Job, for example—are both from the hands of God. And the reason that you're not—and the reason is because you're not sovereign enough." to discover it. And the reason you're not sovereign enough to discover it is because God doesn't want any glory-hungry little rival gods running around. Consider the work of God. He didn't say consider yourself. Consider God. Prosperity and adversity are from the hands of God. Job is the prime example. When his wife comes and says, curse God and die, She's, she has a gift of encouragement. <laughs> And he's like, look, should we, should we only accept the good from God and not the evil? Nonsense. Both come from the hand of God. So wisdom already trusts God in the process. See striving, know that God is sovereign, be wise, trust God the entire time, even in the hard times. The wise, per, the wise person doesn't make a fuss about it. Look at verses 15 and 8 through 18. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. Sounds so depressing. (laughs) There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Right? Why does the wicked guy get to live longer? Why do the righteous suffer? That sort of thing. Do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. This is an enigmatic passage. Let me explain. It is possible in our foolishness to be excessively righteous and overly wise and and excessively wicked and overly foolish. It is possible. The righteous man, he may die very quickly in his righteousness. The wicked man may die after a long life of wickedness. He's already said it several times. We'll both die. Both, there is an end. Both, right? But God sorts it out, not us. God sorts it out. So don't pretend that your righteousness is worth anything, and don't pretend that your wickedness isn't wickedness. Right? Don't minimize sin, but don't elevate yourself. Those are the traps of legalism and licentiousness. Don't, don't go that route, he says. Christianity never needs an adjective in front of it, right? Born again Christian, I, I'm, 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 um, I'm a new kind of Christian. <laughs> Looking at you, Brian McLaren, that sort of thing. So it doesn't need to be defined in wholly other terms either. We we should be fine with saying I'm a Christian, but it's become polluted, so we feel like we have to add to it. Well, I'm I'm a I'm a born again Christian, or or I'm a. I'm a missional Christian, you know? No, 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 I, that's Christian. So God wants you to repent, he says, for your actual sins, and he wants you to repent for making up new sins. That's the problem. Koholeth warns the wise, righteous person. He sees both the danger of excessive righteousness and excessive wickedness, and rather than fall in the ditches, he drives comfortably in the middle, ruled by a healthy fear of God verse 19 Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city See the path between moral legalism and moral indifference is maintained by wisdom and that type of wisdom is stronger inside a man than 10 rulers that are without verse 20 We're going to hit these pretty quickly Indeed there is not a righteous man who unearth who continually does good and who never sins The climax of this exploration of the inhibition of wisdom is here. Everyone is guilty of sins of omission, right? Failure to always do good. And sins of commission, committing unrighteous acts. Verse 21. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that that you likewise have many times cursed others. Speaking of sin, we are not to be so quick to jump at someone because we too have done it. No one likes a jumpy hypocrite. Verse 23, I tested all this with wisdom and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness." And I discovered more bitter, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Just an FYI, he's not saying all of you women here present are evil. There's sometimes in Scripture it's used of um, wisdom and wisdom and folly both used in terms of a she, her, that sort of thing. So life under the sun requires wisdom from beyond the sun. And even then, we, can't, we can only grasp very little of it. While we can't know everything, we should definitely try to know something. In Kolhileth, he sees sexual sin as being another way to inhibit wisdom. If you want to inhib- inhibit wisdom in your life, then just let your lust go run rampant. That's how you inhibit wisdom. See, he says something more bitter than death is lust, which traps you and enslaves you pleasing God requires an escape plan and this requires you to fear more fear God way more than you fear the enticements of sin. And then look at the end 27 through 29. Behold, I have discovered this says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I am still seeking but I have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this that God made men upright but they have sought out many devices. Much like our time, wisdom is is apparently hard to find today. It was hard to find in Solomon's day. This great inhibition to wisdom, this great impediment to fruitful, joyful, God-glorifying lives under the sun is the fact that we were made upright, he says, but we keep seeking ways to dismantle ourselves. We are self-destructive at the core. In other words, it's all our fault. Wisdom is hard to come by because of our incessant need to do what is right in our own eyes. We, have, we all have this uncanny ability to become th- this recalcitrant, th- that is, this uncooperative blowhards. That's what we, we, we like to become. If given the opportunity, justified sinner saints, I'm talking people who are regenerate, been declared righteous by Christ alone, faith alone, Christ alone, all of it. You can check all the reform boxes. If given the opportunity, they will kick against the authority of God in His Word, um, surreptitiously, secretly, in this attempted coup of the throne of God. We've, we've been made up, right? And in Christ, we've been restored. But we have this ability to try to secretly subvert God. It's always a temptation. Which is, what, which is what we really need to see sin as, as being, right? Sin is, is breaching God's covenant law, which is treasonous behavior motivated by a lust for power. We want to be like God, knowing and determining, fashioning, creating, making, and declaring the world on our terms instead of accepting it on God's terms. All of that's the underlying problem in the pursuit of wisdom. We should pursue wisdom. We should, indeed. Indeed. But as Proverbs says, wisdom can only be had when we fear God and trust God. If it doesn't start with the fear of God, it isn't wisdom. It's popular opinion. If it doesn't start with the fear of God, it's just popular opinion. And boy, do we have enough of that going around today. The preacher demonstrates the folly of folly by reducing it down to the absurd. Remember, Ecclesiastes is the greatest book on pushing the antithesis. You want folly? Let's go. Let's dive head into it and explore how wonderfully inept it is. Wisdom and folly, that's the antithesis, and they are both governed by fear. Your lives are governed by fear. That's, that's just a fact. The object of the fear is where it gets a little bit murky, right? Folly celebrates the immediate instead of the fullness. Um, it, it's it's, it's, it's akin to seeing the sprout of a plant and thinks that it's ready for harvest. That's folly. But wisdom sees the fullness of it. Wisdom sees the fullness. It knows that the end result, remember the, be, the end is better than the beginning, the end result of the sprout is this luscious fruit tree that will provide for many for generations. This is why the end is always better than the beginning. We are creatures of progressive time governed and controlled by the clock of heaven. Not the daylight savings thing, again. <laughs> so this isn't a karmic cycle, right? The, we're just repeating history. Someday you will come back, and, and if you're really bad, you become a toilet. Maybe even a good toilet, like a toto. But all of this is on the unfolding of God's history. See, the, the autonomous lust for power fails to consider the nature and the purpose of the thing. You, you, you can't see it. This is foolishness and this is rebellion. The person who loves God's law, the theonomist, sees the nature and purpose of the thing as stemming from the hand of God. Whether that's the institution of marriage, whether that's the righteousness that should be the civil magistrate, whether that's protection of the preborn, you see the thing for what it is and you see it in the way God sees it. And the way God should see it, or we should see it, as God sees it. See, you can see why the te- in the text why this is the case. Fools try to straighten what God has bent. They're they live their lives solely on, uh, in terms of the house of feasting, right? Autonomy, people who live for their own selves, they can only laugh and they can only jeer. Theonomists can be sad, can mourn. People who love God's law can, can mourn well. The, the former can't do the latter, right? Autonomous people, they can laugh, but they can't mourn well. How do you mourn well at a funeral if you don't know Christ? You can't. But the latter, we can do both. We can laugh, and we can adopt God's reductio ad absurdums and reduce things down to the absurd and we can laugh, and we can mourn, and we can cry, and we can pour out our tears, and then we can go the next day and we can smile again. We can do it all. That's wisdom. Being able to tell the time and being able to deploy the right emotion at the right time. That's wisdom. This is the oddity that is Ecclesiastes. It's, it's backwards rhetoric. The, the point of the vanity is not to lo- lament the vanity, but to embrace the vanity. The same goes for that which Christ has made crooked. Death is better than birth, which is totally counterintuitive. Death is this gnarly reality, but it's God's gnarly reality. If it weren't for Jesus, if it weren't for Jesus, who, uh, we wouldn't, He wouldn't have died on the cross, right? I mean, think about this. Um, the gnarliness of Christ's death is both a beautiful picture of God's love How do you you describe that? (laughs) How do you even apprehend that? See, God God thought it entirely appropriate to place on the shoulders of Jesus the Roman cross of torture. Why? Because God cares about death. Death comes from God, as so does life. Death is the curse because of our sin, but it's His curse. Death is the result of man's rebellion, and since God cares about what happens to his elect people, he sent Jesus to take that death on, its, on himself and to exhaust all of its power. And interestingly enough, this act of death is God's wisdom cloaked in foolishness. It's wisdom. See, the world saw the foolishness of the cross, and they named it so. They snickered, they jeered. You know, why can't you have people come rescue you? Where are all your friends? Where's the angels? Why aren't they coming down to take you off the cross? Why did they mock him? (laughs) Because they hated him. But God saw the foolishness. He named it wisdom. Why? So that no man can boast. God dealt with the problem of our constant need to inhibit wisdom by giving us wisdom, a version of wisdom, that we could never anticipate, we could never suspect. So you want foolishness, do you? You want to have the world on your terms? You want laughter and only laughter? You want the corruption and the anger and the bitterness and the naive nostalgia? You want the impatience? Have at it. You're going to come up short every single time because you are leaning on your own understanding, your own wisdom, and you are not, as my rebellious image bears, capable of joy and peace and meaning. See, rather than seeking out many devices, we should seek out the Lord of glory. Rather than being made upright and choosing to live as such, we want to be inverted and live our own way. And let me finish with with these couple of thoughts. What, What Ecclesiastes does, and what this section does, is point us back to God, point us back to the wisdom found in the face of His Son. The Lord Jesus died, He was buried, And he rose again. The end was truly better than the beginning. For while the incarnation was a jaw-dropping miracle, no doubt, the best was truly yet to come. Jesus' death was better than his birth because his death was the judicial transaction that we needed to have our sins forgiven. His good name was better than the ointment that was poured out on his feet as Mary anointed him with the expensive perfume. Jesus went to the house of mourning when his friend Lazarus had died, but since it wasn't Lazarus' time yet, Jesus went straight into the bitter house of mourning on the cross. Rather than the song and dance of the fools, the Pharisees, Jesus um, offered humility. They were corrupt. They were haughty. Jesus was honest. Jesus was patient. Considering the work of God, Jesus exhibited wisdom while everyone else exhibited foolishness, including his disciples. Jesus struck the right balance, avoiding the overly righteous piousness of the religious leaders while never sinning along the way. While men are made right up, upright, they seek out many devices. And Jesus came to restore the uprightness so that we could stop the inversion. Jesus stooped low to get us, but guess what? Because the reason he did that is because low is all there is. That's us. If we won't be low, we won't have Christ. Let's pray. Father, you have been immensely good to us in sending us Christ, who is our wisdom, He is our righteousness, He is our sanctification, He is everything. And Lord, we confess that oftentimes we think it easier to pursue the impatience, pursue the corruption, pursue the the bitterness towards someone, the anger towards someone. We we, we think foolishness is far, far easier. And wisdom is just far too difficult. So we ask for your mercy. May your spirit lead us to the fountain of wisdom so that we may drink deeply, so that our lives would be marked by righteousness and justice and wisdom. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.